G'day everyone, I'm Brett Morrison and welcome to the Leadership Sensei radio show. Welcome back, this is a small business podcast where we look at the many facets of what it means to run, own and lead a small business, but also what it means to be a leader, not only of your business and your corporation, but also a leader of yourself and being the example for those that are with you in your life and also on your team. Thanks for joining us, welcome aboard and I hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, g'day everyone. Thank you for joining us again this week on the Leadership Sensei Radio. Big shout out to all the listeners around the world. And I have to say the stats are getting really exciting. I've got people literally from just about every country now tuning in. So thank you so much for doing it. And thank you again for coming back week after week. Now this week's episode uh, is really fascinating. Uh, We get to speak to documentary filmmaker Rob Henry and his beautiful wife Samantha Lee and their little cherub. Aquila, you'll hear Aquila chime in from time to time throughout throughout the interview. But it's just a f- one of those fascinating and intriguing and interesting conversations that, and look, it probably is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had with anyone in the last few years. It's just a tremendous story, and we were invited in and uh, were guests at their at their home, uh, very graciously accepted in, and we had lunch with them. And look, we did talk for three hours, and could have talked for another three six hours the conversation was so so interesting and the work that rob has been doing is just fascinating work and very very selfless in, in many many ways and i'm sure you'll get a lot out of out of the discussion and the, and the talk that we have today so my wife and i went up and she originally recorded this uh for a radio show many of you will know that we're also doing a radio show at apollo bay on the community radio there um, and but there's just too much. Rob is a real pilgrim and pioneer in what he's been doing in highlighting and but also working with indigenous cultures to to help them keep their their traditions alive. I know in many ways when governments come in to work with indigenous tribes it's about standardizing them so they can integrate them into the, the larger community. But in many ways they feel disconnected. They get lost on that path and and Rob will talk about a lot of that as we go through through the conversation. So, look, strap yourselves in. This is one that you're really going to enjoy. And if I can highly encourage you, at the end of the show, go to the websites that Rob talks about. Go to As Worlds Divide, and that's the movie. You can download the movie. Uh, fantastic, fantastic to watch. Um, won multiple awards already uh, on his journey to bringing it out into the public. So sit back and enjoy. And have a have a great listen. And I'm back again. And I've just gone through the editing process for this uh, episode, and I do want to apologise up front. There is quite a bit of wind noise. Now I did record it in a different format, uh, which has unfortunately not allowed me to take out the microphones, which I while we were recording I could see the noise coming through, and I thought I'd be able to take it out. Uh, even more unfortunate, Rob being the award-winning filmmaker that he is actually pointed that out he goes hey look is this uh wind going to impact it i'm there going no no it should all be good um but in actual fact it hasn't been so look there is a bit of wind noise we did record this outside um on their beautiful property and so regrettably there will be a bit of wind noise throughout the uh throughout the conversation so i do apologize for that hang in there it is a great conversation I know that you will thoroughly enjoy it. Have a great one. OK, 
Okay, so welcome along. This week we've got a couple of very special guests on. We've got Sam and Rob, and uh, also the little cherub Aquila. So you may hear Aquila chirp up from time <laughs> to time. And we're actually recording this live on their property, actually. So you'll hear the birds in the background. It's a beautiful view, and just just a lovely day to be outside and having a chat. Especially when we're talking about nature as well, um, and the projects that they're doing in Malawi. Um, now, Rob, you've got a few projects that um, are coming up in Malawi. Can you? Would you like to talk about how you got on that trajectory? Uh, yep, sure. I'll just correct you there. It's um, Mentawi. Mentawi, sorry. Or Mentawi is, is how they pronounce it. Um, I end up in Mentawi about ten years ago. I was living in Melbourne, working in, a, in an office there, and, and decided that. So I became a little fed up with the the capitalist systems and you know with that nine to five on a rat race and decided to to go and explore something a bit more meaningful and so I just resigned from, from my job there and and I ended up in Mentawai. I was uh, it was it came about through um, a friend <laughs> who's setting up a resort over there and it's quite popular for surfing. Mentawai and he was setting up a resort and offered me an opportunity to go over there and and make films of his guests um, so I thought that was quite idyllic really to go yeah. over and you know live in a tropical island and, and learn cinematography and, um, So you had no background in cinematography up to that point? Uh, no, no I was A I was, surfing background? Uh, yeah I was very keen on surfing um, but cinematography I'd, I'd only just after resigning I I picked up a camera and and started uh, just making some really short films around the community. I was I was quite interested in in uh, getting a better perspective of of what I guess underprivileged people thought of the world. And so I was I was going around and spending some time with with uh, less privileged people around the city and talking to them and and uh, yeah, just making some little short films that are based around that to to try and put put life into perspective for me and um, but otherwise no no prior experience uh, so I was very much learning on the go and and yeah I went to to Mentawai to to spend some time at this resort and I didn't last there very long because I found that I was uh, very well for starters I was interested in the culture um, and, the, and learning about the people and I found that that in this resort it was quite restricted, and I wasn't learning much about the, yeah, you know, the the lifestyle, and and so I decided then to to leave the resort and to go and start living with the the community. So I moved around to the back of the island to a coconut farming vi- village, and and uh, just focused really heavily on trying to to learn the language and and learn about their way of life, and and uh, and at the same time I was trying to capture aspects of their life that that I thought were you know were really interesting and important for um, well for our society and, and also for their society too their future generations and, and they were predominantly uh, skills and and um, and uh, behaviors that were related to sustainability so how how they were utilizing their resources to to, to live on you know with virtually no money and um, you know I thought that that was must be of some importance to 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 our society having just 
and I left Melbourne during the, the global financial crisis. Yeah, uh, so, so I was living with that community, in the coconut farming community, for about six months all up and, and during that time I, I was able to learn the, a reasonable understanding of their, their local dialect and some Indonesian language too and, and about their way of life and, and uh, in the latter stages of that I, I learnt that there was a tribal community uh, still practising their, their Arat Sabalungan culture living further into the forest so I, uh, I'd, I'd gotten to a point there where I felt that um, you know I'd, I had learnt a lot about their culture and their way of life, and and I and I, and I felt that the people were were quite desperate and you know, living in a in a state of poverty, and and that learning something about their or more about their culture and the way that they live traditionally might uh, sort of shed some light on on uh, why they're you know in the state in this current state now, and and so uh, yeah, then I. I went on into the forest and and that moment there where I first arrived into the to the community and met these tribes tribes people who were you know adorned with flowers and really really colorful jewelry covered in in tattoos and um, you know and the the whole aesthetic in this in this really rich rainforest was was just I mean I, in a way that moment Really diverted the course of my life. You know, it has been for, for the past decade. I've, I've been, um, yeah, I've been. I've done something completely different. I think, and, and it was because of that that sort of moment and meeting these people and 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 seeing the more so the contrast between. I mean, that was incredible to see them. These people like this, but but what was most uh, powerful? What was most impacting? For me, was just how different they were to to this uh, resettled community, to the people that I've been living with. In that, in that they were they were so rich in in their, um, the way that they held themselves, their their confidence, their um, yeah, their persona. Their eyes are, have a depth the, to it that is quite rare these days. Of a connection. Yeah, there was I, I the way I I guess describe it is. The, the, their spirit was was very alive, you know, much more so than those that that I'd um, been living with. Were they a bit more vibrant, like energetically? Well? Much more, yeah. yeah, yeah, much more. They they seem. I mean, it's quite cliche, but they did seem like you know the, the happiest people that I've that I'd ever met before, and and so that that then sent me on a on a journey to trying to try and understand how because this was. I think in only two generations, uh, there's been a, a, a huge change in in the landscape there. In, when Indonesia took over Mentawai uh, as part of their own and their own state, and, and introduced uh, resett- uh, yeah, resettlement programs to try and you know, conform the, the tribes into mainstream culture, and and so really only two or three generations ago. But the contrast between these two groups was was profound, and so I. I said about trying to understand, you know, what had what had caused them to to go from this seemingly rich lifestyle, you know, with all these resources and knowledge and connection and spirituality, to to one of poverty, uh, and that's uh, yeah, that then 
took over the next few years and um, started working with some, you know, I met some young Mentawe who were quite in- interested in in that type of work and they were on their own campaign to reconnect with their culture so I was quite lucky to meet these two and and uh, I was working with with them to to find out, I, I guess to, to do those baseline surveys and understand what the attitudes and perceptions of the community were you know, on a more uh, what's the word? Um, quantitative, uh, qualitative, no quantitative yeah. <laughs> level, uh, and and then uh, from there discuss your know, possible solutions, and and that's where you know, we're talking to the community about. Okay, well th- this is the situation. You've you've all stated that that uh, or majority of you have stated that you want your children to learn about your culture, and you think it's an important part of your your growth and development. And, However, there's currently no access for your children, so that to learn about the culture and the environment. So that being the case, what do you think's you know a, a good solution? And at which point they suggested that we develop a, a cultural and environmental education program. Uh, so then that yeah became uh, a focus for us to to work on developing a program and and then. Uh, got to a point there where where this program was was getting to the stage where we could look at start implementing or the community could start implementing but then what they what they needed uh, was support you know funding support uh, um, support from from uh, whether it was the government or outsiders and and so I then came back to Australia and set up a not-for-profit here in Australia which is called the Indigenous Education Foundation. And, I mean, it, initially it's to, to help raise funds and awareness for their program, to, to, to empower them to get their program off the ground, but we set it up as a more universal platform because uh, I just feel that the model that we've, that we've uh, been using to empower the Mentawai could be replicated for this place indigenous communities all around the world in that you know in that you it's not about introducing uh programs to them and telling them that this is something that you know we feel could fix your problem it's it's about empowering the community to to create their own solutions you know based on their their perception of what their needs are and and their situation is so so the the foundation the indigenous education foundations and then set up so uh, hopefully in the future other we're able to support other indigenous communities who who are wanting to reconnect with their culture and uh, we're a, a, almost a um i guess like a like a base that they platform. Could, yeah a platform that that uh communities can come to and say well this is what this is our program this is what we're aiming to do we need support in whether it's funding or advocacy or emotional support that type of thing so so that's the current model really is that when governments come in, they think, well, well, they set up programs, and they do like to call them educational programs, but like you said, it's about helping these Indigenous cultures blend into the, the new culture that they're trying to bring in, help them to assimilate to, like I see it a lot in Australian culture, like over, it's only what, 200 years that white people have been in Australia, but 
the indigenous culture has almost been wiped out. Mm. And for them to assimilate, well, then they must have come into the city. In actual fact, that's not good for their culture. It's actually no. not good for them. And like you said, you've gone into the into a country where they have a sense of pride. They have a sense of self-knowing. Mm. And, and it's been taken away from them yeah. to assimilate into this economic mm. model. Mm. It doesn't work. And because it's not working for them because it... I quite often yeah. relate it to farmers. Like you can tell a farmer when you see them, because you'll be driving through the country. I've had a young guy who used to work for me, and sure he lived in the city. But when we drove down through the Gippsland, he he would just disappear. He'd go off into his own little space, <laughs> and every now and again he goes, "Oh, they're nice hills." <laughs> and you know, and you knew he came off. His, he came off like this twenty thousand acre farm out west, yeah, wow. and it's just in them. Yep. And yeah. when you think about the Indigenous tribe and the connection that they have with land and, and the, their country and what they can get from that, it's not something you can assimilate out of them. Like, it's just, no, it's no, part no. of their DNA. Yeah. Yeah. And to see that connection, you just go, wow, that's, that's really strong. Mm. And having these programs which actually help them come up with a solution to yeah. do that. Is yeah, it, it, it becomes, it becomes really sustainable empowering. then as well because if... Well, I hesitate to use the word sustainable because it's a bit overused these days, but if a community is told what they should do, mm. very, very few, it wouldn't continue on. Whereas if it's their own idea and based on their own needs or wants, yeah. there's a bigger drive and a bigger desire to make it work and to make make it happen. They and know what the mm. solutions are, of course. Yeah. Of course. And I think that disconnection is where we see a lot of that manifestation of issues coming up. Um, into the world, particularly with tribes. Mm. Well, that, yeah, it can't be s- sustainable without um, without it being you know, of their own initiative and, and for them to, to be in, in ownership of the program. And, and so that's a really key part of our approach. You know, it's been apparent if, if the community don't see it as a, important, if they don't think it's a good idea to maintain their culture, then then we can't offer them anything you know in terms of support for or, or we we wouldn't you know we wouldn't continue with the work that we're doing over there because it's a, they've you know identified it that that's uh, you know not what they want well it's just that just be another case of re- recolonization essentially if you yeah that's right that's yeah. so what type of projects are you looking at in implementing with what you're doing at the moment uh, the the program that we're empowering at the moment is uh, it's cultural based, so the the community are, are bringing the kids into these sort of cultural community cultural centres, or if they don't have one, they're just sort of little um, tiny little wooden houses that they form in the in the village, and and they're teaching them about the cultural dance, the the song, about language, about uh, medicines from the forest and resources from the forest, um, and there's there's uh, plans. At the moment, they're still developing their so-called curriculum, if you like, for want of a better word. They're developing it, and and they have plans to to introduce quite a lot more in terms of, you know, crafts and um, um, what building. else? Yeah, building the the traditional homes, and uh, there, there's there's quite an extent of you know the spirituality, for example, you know, tying back to to the the shamanic ceremony and and healing. Rituals and and whatnot, and so these there's there's just so much within their culture that you, of course you know couldn't teach it all in in a year, mm-hmm. so it's got to be spaced out over a long time. And at the moment they're focusing on 
uh, yeah, the dance and the and the song and some bead uh, jewelry making and and that that type of thing. Uh, and you were talking about the importance of identification too, of being part of a tribe, of being identified to belonging. Mm-hmm. Was I talking about? Sorry. Yeah, we were talking outside of this program yeah. about identification previously about markings and about belonging mm-hmm. or getting spiritually mentally emotionally t- to a tribe and how important that is for them mm, yeah it, yeah incredibly important there and i guess that that uh is one of the the most impacting sort of observations that i made is seeing but the the contrast between those is that those that, that have lost that connection to their identity um, uh, at the moment, they're still in a transitional phase, so they're they're quite sort of lost. And to to borrow words from one of the mentawai, um who is in that position, he he likens it to to being like a flag, a, a kite um, without grip on the flying without grip on the string. So they're they're I guess just in between those two worlds where they don't belong to. They don't feel that they belong to their native culture, and they don't feel that they belong to the nationalised either. So they're they're just sort of flailing in the wind without any control on on um, on their kite or you know on their life, and uh, and so the that connection and, and that um, yeah whether it's community or you know, just sense of belonging, it's it's so important for for not just. You know, mentally, obviously, for indigenous, you know, all, all around the world, all people, just all in, us, yeah. yeah in and that, that's why they've come up with this program. Is it's held in conjunction with the national standard education system, so that the children have an opportunity to learn about who they are and what their culture is, and um, opportunities to practice that that they might not have received otherwise. Mm. It's yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's run by the indigenous community and. And it is an extracurricular activity, but it's in addition to their to their na- uh, nationalised education, which which has been the issue for them. It's that this nationalised education that's been introduced, the schooling systems, it's been in placement of their indigenous education as opposed to in addition, and that and that has caused yeah uh, that shift from you know wealthy lifestyle to one of to one of poverty, which may seem <laughs> hard to understand because they're they're being taught how to read and write and all these you know wonderful skills which are are really important and and it is the community do want these skills but the the situation is that there is very limited opportunity for employment that utilizes these skills so they're being they're being taught to read and write but then what that has no purpose for them in their environment the the education that's important for for a lot of them is knowing how to to survive from, you know, the natural resources around because that's mm. that's what keeps them alive. So these skills to read and write are great if they then move to the mainland and and pursue, you know, office roles or or whatever it may be. Um, so so having having both of these options, you know, so they're learning to read and write and, and this nationalised education in addition to their indigenous, it gives them so much more opportunity. When they finish school, then they, if they decide to stay in Mentawai, they're they're still able to survive and you know, mm. and prosper. And, or if they decide to go to the mainland, you know, they can too. So, mm. yeah. from a medicinal 
perspective too. They've got such a rich um, plant medicine culture and practice. And what happens is uh, when they're moved away from learning, getting the opportunity to learn about their traditional plant uses and culture, there's a um, the health, like like Robin mentioned, their health and well-being severely declines because Western medicine is in Mentawe is quite expensive and often inaccessible to the community. So you've got very remote and isolated villages who then have to travel a very long way to go and access these um, medis- medical facilities. And quite more often than not, they're not actually staffed or understaffed or don't have the right um, medicines that they require. But if they did retain the opportunity to learn their traditional medicine practices there would be no need for these extra mm. additional um, things so that's a huge problem because then you have a whole generation who become sick when they're, they're mm. they shouldn't be sick because yeah. they, they have that knowledge from their ancestors and from so they actually maintain their health as opposed to getting sick in the first yeah, place yeah in the first place yeah <laughs> just draw on, on sam at the moment um so she's got an incredible opportunity to document a lot of those plant medicines yeah. Can you talk about um, through university? I I started studying forest science, and then in that had met Rob and found out about his strange journey that he had been on, and <laughs> <laughs> ended up um, going over to Mentawe myself. And I've always been very interested in um, people's relationships to the forest, both culturally, socially, economically, and spiritually, and what that means for. Um, well-being and health and I find the plant world very very fascinating and very interesting so it was um, only a matter of time between before these two interests have of being in Mentawe and the plant world came together and so I've got an opportunity to to do a bit of research on the Mentawe um, useful plants so exciting yeah it's um I feel very very grateful very grateful to be able to to do it but the research project is designed well my intentions for it is to um, spend majority of the time working with the community and um, figuring out what it is that they want to know about their plants what they find important and what they want to document so I, I could go in there and say oh we need to document only these things but what what use is that that's just going to sit on the shelf in another big library and never going to be seen again and that's a huge problem that I've found in the early stages of the research is that this knowledge has been documented by I mean it's still within the community itself it's still there but when um, other scientists or researchers have gone in they've documented it and taken it away and even I as a university student have had a lot of trouble accessing these documents so what hope do they have in accessing this knowledge if they do want to later on so do you also have problems with um i think the tribes i believe they have the intellectual property for um Mm -hmm. herbs or for plants and that um, they're scared that people will come in and exploit um that information and take it on to just say like a pharmaceutical giant yeah well it has happened in the past especially around the amazon that's a huge issue um in mentai i'm not too sure if they're fully aware of those threats per se and I would say oh I'm not sure I haven't actually had a specific conversation with them about it but there are several um, I'd mentioned earlier that there are several international 
instruments that do talk about their rights as and their intellectual property. So just translating those documents is key first and presenting that to the community and saying, hey, if anyone does come in and say, you need to give me this, you don't. This is These are your rights. You have... This is yours. And so a lot of the project as well will be... Look, um, will be offering them, just offering the skills that I have to them in documentation methods and getting that all written down properly, but teaching them how to do it and take ownership and control over that so that, you know, if something like that does happen, they can they can say, excuse me, <laughs> this is ours, here's, the, here's what we've done so far. And yeah, just giving the, I guess, um, reinstating value on their knowledge because the more... In the last 50 years or so, they've been taught that their ideas are backwards, primitive, wrong, stupid, dumb, who needs it? But reinstating that value and saying, no way, what you have is so precious and not many other people get the opportunity to be connected to such a rich culture, but also um, highlighting the value that they as a people have to contributing to the world's cultural and biological diversity and how crucial their role is in that so yeah the project like I said it's like I have my own ideas and goals about how I hope it will look but it's going to change a lot as when I get there and depend on what what they want to see and what um yeah what their goals would be for it and so this research will tie in with the um the local foundation that IF supports over there and form part of their botanical curriculum and go from there. Hmm. A lot of this information really is trans- transmitted down through the generations, isn't it? Yep. And do you find they're getting close to a tipping point where some of this information is starting to get lost? Which is Definitely. why it's so important to start to catalogue it and start to yep. put it into documents so that when... And, and Rob, you mentioned before, there's a, a few of the young Mentawe coming back and going, how do we reconnect? How do we find this knowledge? Is, it, is that one of the reasons why, why you're so passionate about driving forward to get this knowledge documented. I think the one of the first one of the really important things to remember in this as well is that culture is always changing and always adapting and it's never stagnant. So saying that they can uh, and and working with that. So traditionally the knowledge was always passed down orally. It's a completely oral language and so they have the best memory out of anyone I've ever met. It's so incredible. Yeah, and a lot of it takes time too. So um, I remember walking through the forest with a young boy who, um, he would have maybe 10, and I asked him about one particular tree, and so he gave me the pretty much the full rundown about this tree and then proceeded to tell me about the six others following it just in this one path. And that sort of knowledge he had gained through just being immersed in the forest mm. and being immersed with the relationship with not only his elders and the Sekere, but all different levels of um, all different types of people in his life. Um, and those who are now drawn away from the traditional lifestyle, I suppose, might not have that time or that connection anymore. And so, yeah, it is about reinstating that space, but it's also about for them yeah they do want to have a phone they want to be able to like whatsapp their friend they want to be able to be on facebook like why not and who are we to say that that's wrong because that's the lifestyle we live as well so 
a lot of the documentation that we will be doing will be on you know the traditional ways but also how how is this knowledge how is the transmission of this knowledge changing and how can we help accommodate the I don't know the new new ways that they want to learn so yeah doing a lot of video documentation photography and then also teaching um, helping them be able to tell their story through different means whether that's orally written videography yeah just to put in context too in terms of how many of the the what percentage of the community is still living traditionally it's would be just one percent if that so only one percent if mm. that so well, we're, the tipping point is pretty yeah. close isn't yeah. it? Or, or, or do you think the tipping points happened uh, no no it's, it's still yeah i mean they're lucky in that there are there is that one percent because in in uh, you know other parts of the world there it might be well past, but but the there's only um, I'll just pass the quiller on. There's only <laughs> you know a, a, about say a thousand that are living in Sibirut Island, which is the largest of the the Mentawai Islands, that are still practicing the Adatsabalungan culture, still living traditionally. And and the I think total population that was last measured at about sixty two thousand, but that was perhaps 20 years ago so I think it'll be closer to 100,000 across the across all the islands so if there's a you know thousand it's a, it's a one percent but I think that would be a, a generous um, estimation uh, so you know you need to understand yeah it is it is very close there's in Sapporo which is the the capital sort of island of Mentawai a lot of the children there don't even speak Mentawai language they don't not understand their own language anymore, which That's sad, is really sad. Yeah, because there's there's so much culture in a language, and it's very important, isn't it? Very powerful mm. words. Yeah, and it's interesting that a good way to, I guess, remove a culture is to, like I said, instill mm. a new language at school. Hey, this is our new national language, and this is a great idea because now you can go across any yeah. island and talk <laughs> the same language as everybody else. But as as they're doing that, the individual cultures are are lost, aren't they? And then that transmission of knowledge mm-hmm. and transmission, they said, through song and through dance, is, it just disappears. Yeah. It's, it's subtle and people don't really notice it because they think it's good for their kids to go to school and, and learn this new language and because they is. know it gives them opportunity to go to the big island and, mm. and, and you know, potentially get a, a better life or what they perceive to be a better life. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a saying, I think it was on a film I saw years ago, um, you know, how do you destroy a, a hundreds or tens of thousand year old culture in, in one generation and that's, you know, send them to school or, you know, to, to a national school. Um, a lot of your observations are being documented and you've got that cinematography that continued, obviously, and it ended up being When Worlds Divide. As Worlds Divide. As Worlds Divide. Yeah, so following on from, I guess, that progression, after setting up the Indigenous Education Foundation, then we we needed people to learn about who the Mentawai were and what their their programs about. So that's where the film suddenly had a, a really important role. And and uh, I'd been filming, you know, throughout the journey to capture as much as I could, and without really knowing sort of where that would end up and you know what I was what story I was trying to tell, but. But at that point, when after we'd set up the foundation, which probably was a, 
about six or seven years into the journey, the the story had evolved to the, to a point where where we had you know the the crux of a film. So so I then went back and focused time on on uh, producing a documentary film, a feature film, which which we re- released last year in 2017 as part of the Watch a Film Save a Culture campaign, um, which was to yeah give opportunity opportunity to people around the world to to pay ten dollars to purchase the film download the film and and watch and you know at the same time as as they're learning about them in Tawai and and uh you know all this incredible really valuable knowledge i think that that can help you know us in our own society they're also at the same time helping the, these people to to protect their culture and protect the the future of their uh of their livelihood so that's the where the watch a film save a culture sort of name came uh campaign came from so at the moment the the film's now available on online on the website so anyone who wants to watch it can find it yeah, yeah, yeah. so what's that website just so everyone can find it there right so the movie's actually called as worlds divide yeah and it's just at asworldsdivide.com uh, you'll find the film there and so you can either stream or or download a copy um, and there's, I think, six or seven different language subtitles too. So if you wow, speak, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had we were lucky to to have some support from, yeah, people who are speaking different different languages. So, um, but it was important, you know, for that for that campaign. We were an, an international campaign, and and uh, obviously, yeah, the, the more uh, language options and the further you can reach with it. So there's yeah, Spanish, German, French, Italian. Portuguese, uh, Indonesian, Indonesian yeah. obviously. <laughs> that national language. Yeah, yeah. Which oh, I'm not sure how many uh, multilingual people there are in Polo Bay, but you never know. There, there might be some. There's quite a Polo Bay has a quite diverse uh, population. Quite, too, yeah, it's quite, quite interesting, and there's a lot of people that travel. Yeah, oh, great. There's quite well, a lot of people that travel. Um, quite smart ones. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there. So, yeah, if you're interested in having a look at the film and supporting the the cause, and um, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's available. So that's fantastic. And I think these days there's a lot of people who are, I guess, competing for for dollars too. So people are starting to get smarter about or more discerning about how they do donate. And over lunch, you mentioned that you've got, there's a 10 year program of work that the funds that will be raised from this movie will, will go towards. Can you just share? A little bit of some of those things that you've got in the pipeline. Um, yeah, sure. The well, I mean, that's something that we've been, I guess, at, um, promoting as part of our our cause and you know, the, the foundation that we've set up. We do, we do have tax deductible status, DGR status, too. Um, but but all all funds, all proceeds from from the sale of the film or from any uh, fundraising events or whatever we do, go back to the the community. So. And I feel like that that is a, a concern for you know for uh, people when they donate today. There's so much so much uh, uh, funds you know go to to administration or there are, you know yeah. it's really hard to know how much is going to the community. Where I, mean, I can guarantee that you know 100 of it is going to the yeah. community. And we can we can vouch for that because I know on a point of arrival, uh, one of the things that struck me is actually some of the markings that you have. On you at the moment, which you know clearly indicates you're not you're not living in a resort somewhere. You're living with the tribe in, in, in the indigenous environment, aren't you? 
Um, you tattoo souvenirs, yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, they have a very old tattoo culture in Tawai and and uh, in my time living there, the the family that I live with have have been uh, almost moulding me, I guess, into one of the, one of their community, and so I've I've, I've had a number of tattoo ceremonies and and I'm, I've been marked with their tribal markings or the particular clan that I live with um, so I've got most of the the, the suit tattoo suit um, do, they, do they actually call it a tattoo suit? Uh, oh, they, not really but they do refer to it as, as a type of clothing so in the explanation uh, about the meaning of, of the tattoos and, uh, one of the uh, common responses talks about it being the most respectful and uh, yeah, kind of clothing that the Mentawe wear, and they they relate it to, you know, perhaps in your culture, where whatever the the, the best the best looking outfit that you have, you know, the, it might be the colour blue that suits you, or you know, yeah. what, whatever it is. Then then for for us Mentawe, this is this is our um, clothing. So they have related it to, to or termed it as as a form of clothing, but. But yeah, it's more so falls back on that identity and you know, being others being able to identify that they are Mentawe and from a specific tribe or, or region. How do they become so receptive to you? Uh, how easy is it to walk into a tribe and be accepted as readily as you were? Well, <laughs> I, I cannot, can't say across the board because I haven't done it <laughs> in too many tribes, but um, but they were extremely receptive, and, and I think. That by nature, that these people, the Mentawe, are very you know, welcoming people. Uh, it it certainly helped that I'd learnt you know, their language, and um, but by the point I think I've been there six months, and so by the time I moved into the tribal to the forest to where the tribal community were, I could I could speak enough to converse with with them, and even though the dialects were quite different, so where I'd been living, I'd learnt. The, the Sibirut language, but then moving into the tribe where they speak a, a Sarareket dialect, there were differences, but enough that they could understand. I, I spoke enough that they could understand what I was saying, whilst I couldn't understand that much of what, what they were saying or you know, past. But there were quite a lot of words. I thought, "Oh, you're kidding!" I, f- I felt like I'd, I'd um, you know, started to get a sense of this language, and now I've, I've actually don't know what you're saying here. But um, but yeah, that that in itself, the, they there was an immediate connection on and possibly even sense of trust because you know this this uh, white fellow had gone to the trouble to learn our language and, and there aren't too many that it's a difficult language to learn it's not a written language so um so that was a yeah played a big part in in that transition into the tribal community and whilst I, at the same time i was quite frightened because i had no idea what you know these people were like for all i knew they they could have wanted to eat me i you know, i don't don't know so it's, it's more so looking back, you know, in, in hindsight, that that I shouldn't, I didn't have anything to fear because now I know how, you know, how welcoming and how beautiful the people are. But but yeah, at the time, you know, yeah, I, I certainly was um, with them as well. I mean, I had the upper hand advantage in that I went with Rob for my first time to the jungle, so there was that, I guess, immediate connection. But they are the most patient people I've ever met in my life, and probably ever will, because um, I didn't speak much. Well, I didn't speak any Mentawe when I first visited. But they had all the time in the world to sit there and repeat the same word over and over and over again. And I know 
if so, if somebody was learning English, for example, and couldn't get the right correct pronunciation, and after about eight repeats, I'd probably get incredibly frustrated and bored, and like, oh, let's move on to a different word. But mm-hmm. no, they just sat there and kept kept repeating, kept mm-hmm. so welcoming, and yeah, loved sharing everything about what they were doing, and. Obviously far removed from our culture too. Can you describe the setting that you're in as a community so people get a, can get a picture yep. of where you were living? Uh, we're talking about the tribal community. Yeah, and in the forest. Yeah. So they, they live in clan homes, which are called Uma or Umas, and, and these are huge structures. They're, they're built to house anywhere from 40 to 60 people, and they're, they're quite incredible architecturally designed places too because there's... Uh, they're so open, you know. There's there's actually two two walls in the whole, which divides uh, three three sections. So there's only two walls in there, and if you've got forty people living in a, you know, in a home that's only divided by two walls, it's you don't have a lot of privacy. So it's a very a very uh, open and interactive social setting, um, living in these communities and uh, in these almas and it. It varies. Sometimes there's 40 people, sometimes there's 60 people, sometimes there's 10 people. It, you know, day to day, it, it generally changes depending. Well, it on depends the pe- on if somebody's, um, if there's a big feast well, yeah, <laughs> on the table or not. Well. There's certainly <laughs> a lot of people there, but so where do where do the people go? Like, if if that's their main place where they sleep, and they vary so much in in people who are sleeping overnight, where do they go for the other times? Well, the I say that, and that's more. Uh, a situation today where more traditionally I'd say that they it wouldn't have been fluxed um, as much and the reason is because a lot of the younger families of the clans have been given homes in the resettlement villages so they so they might go and stay in these small little um, homes in the resettlement villages for for a week or for a few days and then they'll then they'll come back to the clan home and stay for a while and then and so forth so mm-hmm. So it's somewhere out um, where they keep their their pigs, yeah. or they've got um, like smaller outhouses, I suppose. Mm, yeah, some, some of them, right, so some some of them have uh, yeah other places further into the forest, smaller places, and so they they go out there if they're doing a hunt, or um, so it, it really varies. But the one of the most amazing things about about their their living uh, conditions, or not conditions, sorry, their about the way they live is that 40 people could arrive at the Ulma, you know, in the afternoon and by night time everyone's fed, you know, where I feel like, you know, if that... Can you imagine if 40 people arrived to your house in the afternoon and expected that you... Yeah, that you you expected to feed everyone. Not not in our house. But most people people would find that quite stressful where where it, it really just... Everyone just slips into a role, um, you know, gathering and preparing food, and so there's. It, everyone has a part to play. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is generally seemingly effortless. The, yeah. the way that you know that it, um, the outcome of that forty people arrive, and then a few hours later, everyone's sitting down and, and eating together, and, and with all this food, like too much food sort of Amazing, <laughs> situation. Isn't it? So some of the parts become the whole. Yeah, you know, well, that metaphors really powerful. Well, that's where they yeah, yeah, that community. I mean, you know, many hands make light work, so to speak. And well, that's how that's a function of a community, I guess. And that's that's what enables them yeah. to to have survived for such a long time in these 
in this remote place. Mm-hmm. They they work together to, and this is from a very young age too. The children take on roles, um, even from you know like four or five years old. They're they're off in the mornings uh, feeding the the chickens or some of the animals or collecting different pieces. They they uh, they all and parenting is another thing. The children you know the as young as six or seven, and the girls are, are already looking after their younger siblings like like the, they are um, their own children. And, and so that just makes, well, for one, it makes it possible for them to have ten kids, yeah. <laughs> each family, but, yeah. but, it, but it also uh, makes it possible for, that, for those large clans to survive. And that um, importance of contribution from mm. everyone. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really yeah. Well, that's why it's, yeah, it's all possible to, to have so many people over. And and knowing that there's such big structures now, Indonesia is known for its you know, cyclones. <laughs> how, mm. how do they survive through that? Um, it's more it's earthquakes would be more the issue for them there. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're incredibly well built, these, these things. And the knowledge that these generally shamans, or say shamans, but there'll be other people in the community that, uh, that have this this knowledge, they they're almost that they can read timber, and they they've got such a uh, a great understanding of the forest and the resources that that they they know which timbers are you know will float and which timbers will be used or best used for building houses, and so the the quality of of timber or quality of um, the resource they use is, is exquisite. So, they, and these houses are built manually. Not there's no machinery. That's right, there's no, no power tools, is there? No. It's all, all handmade. No, they're handmade, like and, and, and they're held together with you know like a, a rattan, rattan vine. Wow. That's uh, the that's holds a lot of the um, the structural yeah. beams and things together, plus the, the roof, and so it's quite it's quite amazing to see mm. really. And and these that would be, be magnificent. Yeah, they and they last, uh, you know, quite a long time too. But so I think what the thing that had that oh, I was most shocked by was hearing that these great, big, beautiful buildings with um, roofs made from sago leaves, so stitched together with bits of rattan or bamboo, take three months <laughs> to build. Mm. <laughs> but that's just because they've got. You know, the, Without, all yeah, the friends will come over to help yeah. build, do the roof. The whole, the group yeah. yeah, they could do it. They could do it in a month. I, I've been talking to uh, Masandere, my father over there, and he about building an Orma because I, I, I'd like to document that. I think it would be such a important knowledge to pass on, and and a lot of and it was in part of our surveying. Pretty well, most of the community don't know how to build a, an Orma anymore. From you know, resource in the forest, and and that's a like su- such a rich knowledge for them because at the moment they're because they don't know how to build these their, their own houses. They're having to import things like tin or um, cement to to build houses, which of course costs money and you know, it's so quite which expensive they don't too. Have. Yeah, which mm. they don't have, which yeah. is then then creates puts more pressure on yeah. them and pushes them further into desperation. So where they've got all the resources that they need right there to build houses, so it's it's quite important and. Um, so I'd like to, you know, to work with them to build an orma and document, you know, step by step. And and uh, so I've been speaking with Masandari about it, and he he said that, you know, with the, enough people, they'll build it in a month. You know, which is that's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. Because you'd be flat out getting builders in Australia to put a house up in a month. Just get a slab down, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. let alone the whole thing. Takes longer than that to get council approval. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic idea, and 
you know, I know that someone, I think I think it was Tony Webb, I'm not sure, sorry Tony if I've got this wrong, but he had the same premise that um, if someone needed something done at their home, whether it was build a home or have their garden done, you get a whole lot of people come together and it would be done in the day yeah. mm. rather than, you know, mm. how gorgeous is that as a community to mm. come together to manifest something? Yeah. And I've There's seen a lot of lessons to be learnt just in, oh, if, if that was enacted in our day-to-day. Mm. I think life would be very different for a lot of people. And and that's exactly it there. It, it's the difference between life being difficult and life being easy because they're, they, and I've, I've seen recently, um, shaman, I've walked, going on a walk, I run into a shaman who's carving his own boat so they, they make their dugout canoes and and um, in conversation with him, he was quite annoyed because generally the process of building a boat would be They'd put on food, so they'd hunt and, and um, sacrifice a pig and, and call the community to come and help them to fell a tree, to to then um, carve it out and drag it out of the forest. And and he said that he couldn't get anyone to come and help him. He said he'd, he'd, his son or nephews or whatnot, they're all too busy now to come and help him. And that's, and that's uh, I guess, that part of that transition away from you know, connection to the land and, and people... Uh, adopting the the newer nationalised modern yeah. lifestyle where where there's just so like everyone if you look at our society today everyone's really busy and yeah. and I feel like that that's what's starting to then you know they're seeing signs of that that change. Um, that's funny because I know there's research and there's been a book released in the last year or maybe two years called the, the Blue Zones of Happiness. So yeah. I think the same author did the Blue Zones of Longevity. But one of the things he talks about in this Blue Zones of Happiness is about this connection with family and mm-hmm. having the kids raised with the grandparents and everyone yeah. living closer together. Mm-hmm. I think there's one country that actually offered a tax incentive if you live within 100 metres of your grandparents. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, and, and you think, well, he, he have a community, the whole community, living under the one roof. Mm-hmm. And so parenting isn't done by one person. It's, it's no. about a communal. And when, you talk about, so, when you talk about respect amongst youth, and like quite often you hear that today about the millennials, that there's no respect, but... Everyone's held to account, so it's not just one person held to account for a child's behaviour. It's mm. everybody, and they all see it as their responsibility. And when someone you know pulls a child up, it's not oh, you can't talk to my child like that. Yeah, which is what happens in our culture. It's about well, if they're speaking to you, that you're doing something wrong. Well, mm. Nick, could, because next year we'll be going mm, over absolutely. to do the research and documentation projects, and Aquila came into the mix unexpectedly. Quite a few people have um, pulled me up and said, "Are you mad for taking a child into?" There are no accidents. <laughs> yeah, well, she clearly wants to come along for starters. But secondly, like they question whether or not that's a, a wise idea as a as a parent and young mum. And I like all I can think about is what an incredible opportunity to learn from a culture that work together. <laughs> You're not isolated as a young mum. If I have any questions, they're about four other elder women that I could ask under the one roof and if I need to go I don't know have a wee or something like that I I know that there's somebody who's got eyes on her and if it's not you know if it's not the 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 other mums or the children are well capable of looking out for each other sometimes you have to wonder how how this culture has survived thousands of years if it's so dangerous yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, that's right I just want to ask you both from these conversations two things that come to mind Um, one is is there much is loneliness prevalent there Um, like it's obviously becoming a big factor in our society 
Mm. I'm just wondering through this communal work that everyone, you know, gathers together, if, if there's any loneliness that you see that's prevalent there? Um, for the local, for, for the Mentales? local, for that community? No, the... I, I, don't, I don't see that. I, I think, and even, to be honest, um, like mental mental disease uh, is very little of, of that too you know to to put in perspective or context uh, context I had a friend there who's works as a guide and and he'd been off I, I run into him every now and then when I go down to the port town and and I caught up with him and he said he'd been out taking some some guests from England uh, out to to have a look at an island where they were thinking about investing in like building uh, a resort or something and so he'd taken them out there and and I asked him how the trip was and he, he said it didn't go really well he got sick and had to come back or they came back a bit earlier and so I, you know he went on to say that that the the English people were they weren't really happy with the conditions that that he was um, living in and they were complaining quite a lot and uh, and so I I sort of kept on prying into into what you know his illness might have been, and he said when he got back, since he got back, it, it went away, and and I think what it what it actually was he's experienced was stress, in and so he, he the way that he explained it to him that was was like it was a disease, you know this yeah. um, sort of pressure on on him to be doing something that he couldn't like he felt like it was out of his hands or, or whatever the case, but yeah he he turned that disease, and I thought. I almost laughed, actually, but but you know, in respect, I didn't, and, and thought that's. I wonder if he'd, what he'd think if I told him that a majority of people in our society live like that, you know, from day to day. And, and but it is a disease, isn't it? Like that's the whole concept of stress and and, and, and how too. and how people mm. deal with it or don't deal with it mm. is making people very sick yeah. in, in our culture. Yeah, well, and so I mean, I say that just to, I guess, give you an idea of. Of where they're at in terms of you know mental illness and so just stress something that we've now you know, became accustomed to living living by to them is a disease is you know thought to be a disease well, so yeah. so um yeah loneliness I, I i don't see a lot of that they're a very social culture and yeah. I, I guess the more distant they become from their culture the the more uh then they will start to yeah, we will start to notice those type of things, but but certainly not in the in the forest. There's you know there's none of that type of things. So, in there's fact, no I don't think that they'd even lonely. understand <laughs> if I if I try to uh, explain to them what a mental disposition is and ask them if they suffered from this or that. I, I honestly just don't think it would be in the, within the realm of their understanding yeah. that they wouldn't un- quite get what I mean. If there's no words in the language, then it's something that they don't experience. Yeah, then it doesn't. Yeah, that's right. So, so I think that that's a, you know, I think that that's something that we're in, in the modern world. Oh well, it's wrong to say modern because they're living in the same era. But uh, in the in the more developed countries, you know, that's something that we're going to see a hell of a lot more. I think in the coming years, in, you know, with the direction that we're heading. I think the other one was the uh, we talk a lot about the initiation phases of um, uh, uh, pre-pubescent kids going into the initiation yeah, mm-hmm. stages as well. That we don't tend to do it so well in the Western world, whereas the tribes still do it. Just they transition so smoothly. I think that's the key word that you used yeah, was that it's smoothly. And what I've seen is that 
like Robin mentioned before, that the in the young girls they're m- mothering the younger ones from a from such a young age. It's not. Um, it's never a big deal. Mm. It just is a natural progression, and um, yeah, mm. it's quite beautiful. I love to what you really. said a few times already, especially over lunch. Sam was about they will ask you a question, and you, you sort of struggle for an answer, but but that just is. Yeah, not that. <laughs> yeah, and that just is. Yeah. yeah, and I think that sums it up really nicely. That that's just how it is. Mm. Like, there's not mm. like they're doing something different. It's not like they're, you know, doing something wrong. It's that's just what. That's what. Just, just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> and no one, no one questions that. I, I think yeah. I explained it to you by the sky doesn't have to have a brief moment of like, oh, I've got to be the sky. Okay, I'm done being the sky. It just, it just is, is the sky, sky. and yeah. that's a. That's a sense that I get from being yeah. in Mentawe and in, you know, being so, I guess, in touch with nature and being so immersed in, uh, I guess, a, a spiritual, um, spiritual belief system. It's n- it's not that. I hesitate to use the words. Oh, it's nothing special. Not like that. I mean, the, there are definite moments of the sacred and cer- ceremonial and ritual, but it's so intrinsic to who they are as a person and I think that that's something a lot that I've taken a lot from my experiences with the tribes is that I don't need to go searching for and have this appearance of of you know attaining some sort of spiritual knowledge or peace because it's right there <laughs> in me anyway and that's a beautiful spot we might wrap it up because we have actually run out of time for the show so Can you just mentioned how to help them yeah absolutely so before we do wrap up I'll just love uh, you to share with us how people can stay in touch with you, where they can follow you on social media. Um, you mentioned before about the website where people can go and download the movie so they can contribute to the foundation. But if there's only any other projects that you're working on, how people can follow you and stay in touch and learn more about what it is that you're doing. Um, yeah, the I guess you can stay in touch. The best way is probably through the asworldsdivide.com websites because um, the Indigenous Education Foundation website is ieffprograms.org which might be a little bit harder for people yeah. to, to remember but if you go to the asworldsdivide.com there's a link to foundation on there, one of the tabs and and um, that will take you to the IEF website and, and through there you can connect with our, our Instagram or, or Facebook or you know follow along the story or, or um, uh, register for an e-newsletter and so we, we're really trying to push people more so to the foundation now than the film's website because the the um, the foundations yeah where that story is going to continue. So on Facebook it's the foundation. So is it? Um, we've got f- f- Facebooks for both the film and the foundation. But if you, I'm just saying the the film's website because you can get then through to the foundations the and okay. and from there there's yeah links to all all those relevant sites. Maybe and we can pop up the links on where the program is as well. Yeah, we'll do yeah that. can you do that? If that's we'll do it. That. Yeah, yeah, put some we'll, we'll, we'll pop the links there. Okay. okay. We'll pop the links up. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond my skill level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. If not, com, and it will send you on a rabbit hole of adventures. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your Thank journey you so with us. That's, that's oh, just been pleasure. really Look special. Look forward to, to um, hear all about. sharing when we're back next year. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got more stories to tell than I bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Yeah. So, thanks very much. Thank yeah, you so much. Our pleasure. Thanks for coming Thank out. You. Well, there we go. We've wrapped up another podcast. Thank you for staying with us. And for if you're a new person coming in to listen to a new listener, thank you for joining us here at the Leadership Sensei Radio. If you're a repeat listener, 
Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for joining us again. And I hope you got great value once again from it. And also, let's say again, thank you to my listeners all around the world. You make a big difference. It makes it really meaningful for me to know that there are actually people tuning in and listening. If I can ask you to please subscribe on whatever platform that might be, whether it be iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher, whatever platform that you're listening to this on. If you haven't joined me or joined our community at on Facebook, please also do that. You can find me at the Leadership Sensei on Facebook. Most days I do have a short video going up and I do put other content up there at various times as well. So thank you again. Have a great week. I'll see you next time.